This morning I want to talk to you about a private affair for all to read. A private affair for all to read. I invite you to take out your Bible and turn to Psalm 51. Once you pound your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge." Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. By the time he was 50 years old, David was a success according to anyone's standard. As a teenager, he defeated the giant named Goliath with a sling and a stone. By the age of 30, he was crowned as king of Israel. For the first two decades, David demonstrated exemplary leadership. For more than 20 years, he never tasted defeat on the battlefield. Not only was he undefeated, but he built up Israel to encompass some 60,000 square miles. The public popular opinion of David was through the roof. It didn't take very long for people to say, this will be the greatest king Israel will ever experience. Even the author of scripture on more than one occasion says that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David must have felt invincible. I suspect that being invincible can be exhilarating. I also suspect it can be quite dangerous. 
The most dangerous times in the life of the believer are not tough times. Oh no, tough times tend to create people who are dependent on the Lord. The most dangerous times for the life of a believer is when everything's going your way. You and I don't fall asleep when we're in the ocean surrounded by sharks. But we just might drift off to sleep if we're in the safe, sandy confines of a sun-drenched beach. Oh, make no mistake about it. The toughest times in life, they're, uh, the most dangerous times are not the tough times. The most dangerous times are when everything's going your way. You just got the great job. You just landed the promotion. The financial investment just made a huge payoff. You just made the touchdown-saving tackle to secure the victory on Friday night. You just got married. You just had your first child. You just had your first darling grandchild. You just entered into retirement. When things are going well, that's when you got to be careful. That's what happened to David. For the biblical author tells us that one evening in the spring of the year when most kings go to war, David stayed back in Jerusalem. David should have been on the battlefield. He should have been in war. He should have been with the other soldiers, but instead, he stayed at home. He stayed in Jerusalem. Why? Because he's David. He's invincible. He's never tasted defeat on the battlefield. Why is it going to start now? What's the worst thing that can happen? He's David for crying out loud. Scripture says that on that evening, David walked on his palatial rooftop. It was a large balcony outside his sleeping quarters. From that vantage point, he could see the entire city. Yet on this night, he wasn't staring at the entire city. He was staring in a specific spot at a particular location. The Bible tells us that David saw a woman taking a bath. I've never known the scripture to exaggerate. It says that this woman was very beautiful. I take that to mean that she was a knockout. I don't know if David knew the song, but I'm quite sure that pumping through the surround sound system of the palace was the 1977 Commodore hit, She's a Brick House. Mighty, mighty, letting it all hang out. She's a Brick House. If not that, then uh, maybe Justin Bieber's song, uh, Despacito, uh, this is how we do it down in Puerto Rico. Either way, oh, how I wish that David would have looked away and turned away and walked away. But he set his gaze on this woman. It's not the first look that will get you. It's the second look that will hypnotize you. And David stared at this woman. He watched as the water cascaded down her voluptuous curves. He saw how the water ran over her smooth, soft skin. In his mind, he began to think of all the possibilities. He called one of his servants, asked the identity of this anonymous woman. The servant said, uh, isn't that Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, in the most polite way possible, uh, what the servant was saying to his master is, this woman's off limits to you. 
She's not just a thing to be objectified. She is a darling daughter. Not just a darling daughter of anybody, but of Eliam. She's not just a daughter, but she's also a wife. Not just anybody's wife, but the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's mighty men, one of his most trusted soldiers. Uriah had placed his life on the line for David time and time again. David knew this family. He trusted this family. The servant is saying in the most nice, nicest way possible, this woman's off limits to you. Oh, but David throws caution to the wind, burns with passion. He calls for her. And they have a night of erotic pleasure. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said at the moment of our sin, God becomes very unreal to us. It's not that the devil wants us to hate God. He just wants us to momentarily forget about God. Bonhoeffer went on to write that temptation is both sudden and fierce. Do you know what temptation's like? Do you know that kind of temptation? Temptation that's sudden and fierce? Oh, maybe your temptation is not the temptation of David, but maybe it's something totally different. But regardless, do you know what it's like to face temptation that comes at you from out of the blue? It comes around the corner. It is sudden and fierce. It's not that you hate God. No, you love God. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But at the moment of your sin, God becomes unreal to you. You act as if God doesn't exist. It's just a momentary lapse of judgment. It's just in a moment. It was Chuck Swindoll who said, it's been my observation that the devil never tips his hand in temptation. He only shows the fun, the beauty, the joy, the ecstasy, but never the consequences. The devil never tells the heavy drinker, I wouldn't do that if I were you, because your addiction to alcohol just might cause you to lose everything that means so much to you. I mean, because of your addiction to the bottle, you're going to lose your money and your family and your reputation, maybe even your job. Oh no, the devil never says anything like that. The devil never says to the thief, uh, I wouldn't steal that if I were you. Because if you steal that, then you just might get caught. If you get caught stealing that, that's going to land you behind bars. And that's going to be a mark that's going to follow you all of your life. I think you should think twice before you steal that. No, the devil never says anything like that. The devil never says to the adulterer, now listen, let's just stop and think about this. Before you go down this path, let's think about this logically. I mean, what you're about to do, you're going to destroy your family. You're going to destroy the other person's family. You're going to do something that is evil in the sight of God. You might end up having an unwanted pregnancy that's not desired by you or the other person. And furthermore, you may contract some uh, life-threatening disease. So before you go down this path of adultery, you may just want to stop and count the cost. Oh, the devil never says anything like that. But when the dirty deed is done and the price for sin comes due... The devil is nowhere to be found to offer help or comfort, healing, reconciliation. That's what happened to David. David was thumbing through the mail at the palace. He saw a letter that was marked urgent. He ripped it open, and the letter read something like this. Dear David, I'm pregnant. Sincerely, B. David knew exactly who it was from. A cold sweat came over his brow. He immediately began to think up the cover-up 
He thought to himself, all I've got to do is get Uriah in from the battlefield. He just has to spend one night with his wife and then nobody's going to ask any questions because uh, then when Bathsheba begins to show, everybody can remember the night that Uriah came home from the battlefield. And then nine months later, when she delivers, nobody will ask any questions. This seems like a foolproof plan, especially for David. David doesn't live in the days of paternity test or uh, late afternoon talk shows where David would have to go there and defend himself in front of a watching crowd. No, this sounds like a great plan for David and it would have worked but Uriah was a better soldier David invited Uriah to the palace Uh, David was the one that greeted him at the palace door they had small talk about the war how it was going and then David said to Uriah go home and wash your feet that sounds like a strange statement to make. I mean, let's just be honest. Who gets pregnant by washing your feet? I mean, nobody gets pregnant by washing feet. Yet clearly, according to Scripture, David said to Uriah, go home and wash your feet. It doesn't make sense until we realize that wash your feet is a euphemism. In our vernacular, what David is telling Uriah is go home and enjoy supper, sex, and a shower. David knew what he was saying. Uriah was picking up what David was putting down. And it is Uriah who said, O king, I cannot do what you're asking. Isn't the ark of God in the battlefield? Aren't the soldiers of God, the army of God with the ark? Don't they have wives they would love to come home and enjoy an evening with? I cannot do this thing that you suggest. Well, the king is not going to be outdone. So the next day, the king throws a party. It's a party for Uriah. There's only two people on the guest list, King David and Uriah. That's it. And that night, King David gets Uriah sloppy drunk, hoping that in that inebriated condition, he would stumble and stagger out of the palace, down the street, into his house. David doesn't care if he actually sleeps with uh, Bathsheba. He just has to get him in the door, under the roof, and he doesn't really care what happens next. So he's hoping that in that condition, he'll just kind of stagger his way down to his house. It's a great plan, isn't it? David thought the deal is done. Problem solved. Until the next morning when David opens the front door of the palace to get the morning newspaper, and there's Uriah right there on the sleep on the front porch. He never made his way off the palace porch. Now David is fuming. He is fit to be tied. So he goes into his office and he pins a letter to General Joab. And this is what the letter says. I want you to put Uriah in the front of the line where the fighting is fiercest. And then when the enemy attacks, I want you to withdraw so that Uriah will certainly be struck down and killed. David signed the letter. He sealed it with his royal ring. This is David we're talking about. This is a man after God's own heart. Yet a heart that had become cold and calculated. David took the letter, gave it to Uriah. Uriah had no idea he was carrying his execution papers. Like a good soldier, he took it to his general. General Joab opened the letter and he read it. And he obeyed his king. Uriah died. The blood of Uriah was on the hands of David. Bathsheba was given some time to mourn and grieve the death of her husband. And then David called her to the palace. She became one of his wives. 
A few days later, it's Nathan who shows up. Nathan is the prophet, the man of God. And Nathan comes and says, I want to gain an audience with the king. This is not a problem because David loves Nathan. Nathan loves David. There have been numerous times that Nathan has shown up at the palace floor and to say, thus saith the Lord. And every time uh, David sees Nathan, he gets excited because a good word from God is about to come from the man of God, the prophet of God. So when David sees Nathan, he says, hey, buddy, I'm glad you're here. What does God want to say to me today? And Nathan says, well, David, I've got a story to tell you. And the king says, I love a good story. Why don't I just pull up a chair and listen? And the prophet says, that sounds great. There was a rich man who had a large flock. And one night there was a traveler that came by and in good Palestinian hospitality, the rich man wanted to provide a meal for that traveling guest. Instead of taking one of his many lambs from his large flock, he went next door and stole from a poor man the only little ewe lamb that that poor man had to offer. He stole that man's lamb, he sacrificed it, and he presented it to the traveling guest. Oh, by this time of the story, David is fuming. You can see smoke coming out of his ears. He is irate. He thinks this is an actual event that took place in his sacred city under his watch. He says, this is a despicable thing. The man who did this deserves to die. He will pay back four times the amount of what has been stolen. For what this man has done is wicked and evil in the sight of God. All the while, David had no idea that Nathan was putting the proverbial noose around the king's neck. Until Nathan looked at his king and said, you are the man. You are the man. You are the man. You are the man. And with those words, David wilted in his chair. Nathan continued. The sword will never leave your household. What you have done is evil in the eyes of God, for you've taken Bathsheba as your wife. Bathsheba does not belong to you. She is the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. What you did, you did in secret. But God will raise one close to you who will take your wives and sleep with them in broad daylight. The biblical author is very clear. On numerous occasions, it says, this thing David had done displeased the Lord. If you know David's story, if you've read his accounting, if you've read what's in the Old Testament about King David, you'll discover that everything Nathan said comes true. David's house is racketed with deception and deceit and incest and rape and murder, all because of consequences. For the sin of David. David is overwhelmed. He's heartbroken. I think soon after Nathan leaves, King David goes into his study and he writes these words of Psalm 51. David is a man after God's own heart, but don't ever misinterpret that as perfection. David is not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. There's no one perfect save the Lord Jesus Christ. But to say that David is a man after God's own heart is to say that David knew what to do with his sin. So David placed his guilt before God, verses 1 to 6. And David pleaded for cleansing, verses 7 to 12. And David promised a life of transformation, verses 13 to 19. 
David begins by placing his guilt before God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity. These are powerful word pictures. The word mercy is the word grace. Grace is not only a noun, it's a verb. What David is asking for is for God to grace him. I want you to grace me, not because I'm good, but because you're great. It's not because I have merit, it's because you have mercy. I don't deserve your mercy, I can't earn your grace, but I just need for you to be God because I really have messed up. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. He says, I want you to blot out my transgressions. The word blot out is the imagery of taking a clean cloth and wiping out a dirty bowl from the inside out. David understands that his sin is not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. He is thoroughly dirty and messed up from the inside. He needs for God to come in and to wipe out his soul, wipe out his life from the inside out. Wash away all my iniquity. That word wash away is so picturesque. Your translation is G-rated. What David actually writes is, is that word wash away means clean my soiled garments. I've made a royal mess of things, David says. I've thoroughly messed up. I have myself to blame. I can't blame anybody else. I am thoroughly and utterly dirty, and I need for you to cleanse my dirty soil and garments. I need you to wash away my iniquity. The word iniquity literally means twistedness. It's the picture of a person being bent over under a heavy load of bricks. David is saying, my actions have been cumbersome upon me. My actions have loaded me down with bricks. My actions have made me twisted and bent and curved. I am deformed. I am not the man that you want me to be. Oh God, I need for you to lighten my load and take away my burden. David says, against you and you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. David, how can you write that? I mean, I think you sinned against Bathsheba. And I'm quite certain you sinned against, oh boy, Uriah. How can you say against you, oh God, and you only have I sinned and know what is evil in your sight? David understands the inextricable connection all throughout the Bible of the horizontal with the vertical and the vertical with the horizontal. For when we sin against one another, we are sinning against God. When I slap your face, it's as if I'm slapping the face of God. When you slap my face, it's as if you are slapping the face of God. We are inextricably connected, the horizontal and the vertical. So when David is acknowledging he has sinned against Bathsheba and he has sinned against Uriah, but ultimately his sin is before God. So against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David does not play the blame game. David does not play the blame game. He doesn't say, God, it's not my fault. It's not really that bad. Have you seen what the other kings are doing? Have you seen what they're doing it or who they're doing it with? Have you seen what they're doing on the cover of night? Have you seen what they do on the weekend? Oh God, have you seen the other kings? David doesn't play the blame game. He doesn't say, it's not my fault. I'm not nearly as bad as other kings of other pagan nations. He doesn't even say, God, it's really Bathsheba's fault. If she wasn't so beautiful, I wouldn't have looked twice. If you'd have made her drop dead ugly, then I would not have looked. But, but you made her so beautiful. God, really, it's your fault. It's not my fault. It's Bathsheba's fault. It's not my fault. It's other king's fault. It's not my fault. David doesn't play the blame game. Church, you and I have got to stop blaming other people for our disobedience. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not 
your parents' fault. It's not so-and-so's fault. It's not a skeleton's fault. It's not this. It's not that. It's your fault. It's my fault. We sin because that's what we selfishly want to do. David sinned and he owned it. He says against you and you only have I sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight. He places his guilt before God. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't blame anybody else. He owns it. You and I have got to stop blaming other people for our disobedience. Not only does he place his guilt before God, but he also pleads for cleansing. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a small bushy plant that was used in sacrifices uh, his plant was cut and used um, like a paintbrush. It would take the, the blood of the sacrifice animal. It would sprinkle it on the altar of God. And sometimes, even with that hyssop plant, it would sprinkle the blood on the people of God. Oh, what David is asking for is for God to not only be high priest, but also sacrifice. David knows that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So he is saying, God, I need for you to be my high priest. I need for you to offer sacrifice, and I need for you to be the sacrifice. I need for you to be the Lamb of God who carries away the sins of the world. What David is longing for is what you and I call Jesus Christ and the subsidiary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, Lord, please sprinkle me with the blood of the Lamb. He's acknowledging his sin, and he knows that only God can fix it. He is saying what the hymn writer will say thousands of years later, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is what David is longing for. Cleanse me and I will be clean. David knows that sin is an inside job. Sin is from the inside out. It's not from the outside in. If you stop and think about sin, sin is confusing, isn't it? Because it's so conflicting. What I mean is this. How is it possible that the same man who went to the valley, saw Goliath, and said, I'll kill him by the power of God, is the same man who walked on his rooftop, saw Bathsheba, and said, I'll sleep with her against the word of God. How's that possible? That blatant inconsistency. How is that possible? This one who demonstrated loyal love to Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is the same guy who's going to demonstrate lustful love in 2 Samuel chapter 11 towards Bathsheba. It's only two chapters different. It just takes a couple of minutes to read, a couple of moments to live. How in the world from out of the same guy can you have loyal love and lustful love? It's conflicting, isn't it? It's confusing, isn't it? How can it be that out of the same man... You can have someone who is so sacrificial and so sensual. How can it be that the same man can be so noble yet so nasty? How can it be that he can be so compassionate and so calculated? How can this be? I think this is why Jeremiah says that the heart is a deceitful place. It's above all else. It's beyond cure. This is 
why Beth Moore uh, says that godly people can do ungodly things. Holy people can do horrible things. Alistair Begg says it this way. He said, sin always results when desire and temptation and opportunity collide. You can handle two out of three, but you can't handle all three. If there's desire and temptation, but no opportunity, sin won't result. If there's desire and opportunity, but it's not really a temptation, sin won't result. If there's temptation and opportunity, but you don't really have the desire to do it, then sin won't result. You can handle two out of three, but when all three of them collide, desire, temptation, and opportunity, watch out. Because sin will inevitably result. It was James Sanders who said the biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. You don't look into the pages of Scripture to find individuals to show you how you ought to live. You look into the pages of Scripture and you find individuals who show you how you actually live. It's a mirror. It reflects back your identity and who you are. It reflects how you live. And so we look into the life of David and guess what happens? What peers back at some level is your reflection and my reflection. How can we explain the blatant inconsistencies of our lives. How do we explain that? How do we justify that? Oh, on Sunday, we know how to get our praise on, but then Monday through Saturday, we may live a different way, say a different language, do a different thing, go places that if it was spoken today, you would be embarrassed about it. How in the world can we live with such blatant inconsistency? What do you do with your blatant inconsistency? I'll tell you what David did. He said, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Oh, that word create is a powerful verb. In the Hebrew language, it's the word bara. We would spell it in English, B-A-R-A. The interesting thing about the verb bara is that it always and only has God as its subject. Other people, other humans can make, create, and build, but only God can bara. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You want to take a stab at what word that is that's translated create? It's the word bara. Only God can do it. God is always and only the subject of the Hebrew verb bara. What is David saying? David is saying, God, I've got a problem that I can't fix. I've got a problem that other priests and preachers can't fix. I've got a problem that even religion cannot fix. I need for you to barah within me a brand new heart. Church, you do realize there are some problems that money can't fix. There are some problems that the military cannot fix. There are some problems that politicians cannot fix. There are some problems that lawyers cannot fix. There are some problems that doctors cannot fix. There are some problems that your mom and daddy can't fix. There are some problems that your charisma cannot fix. But there ain't no problem that Jesus can't fix. What David is declaring is God, I need you to be God in my life. He's not asking for heart repair. He's asking for heart replacement. I need for you to create within me a brand new heart, a pure heart, one that's untainted by sin. God, I need for you to put me on the operating table. I need you to usher me into the operating room. And God, I need you to be my great physician. I need for you to transform me. I need for you to heal me. So David is asking for God to cleanse him. 
you come into this sanctuary today and, and you may think that you're going to church. I get it. I understand. It's Sunday morning. But really, you came into an operating room. And good news for you, the doctor's in. The great physician is here. He's a skilled surgeon. He's got a perfect bedside manner. He knows what's wrong with you before you know what's wrong with you. You're walking in and you've got heart palpitations. You're walking in, you've got a widow maker. You're walking in with cardiac arrest. You're walking in and you're about to die spiritually. But God knows exactly where you are, who you are, and how you are. And he knows how to fix you. He knows how to fix up that which has messed you up. You are here in the operating room and the doctor is in the house. David is saying, I place my guilt before God and I am pleading for cleansing. So God, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. God, you create within me a pure heart. Third, he's promising a life of transformation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then sinners will repent. Oh, God, you touched me. You changed me. Uh, you give me a bad case that can't help us where I can't help but speak about what I've seen and heard. God, you transform me from the inside out. And I promise you, out of my lips will come praise. I promise you, you give me opportunities and I will declare the good gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that sinners will repent and those who are sinful will confess their sins unto you. Oh, God, please, I promise a life of transformation. It was Tony Evans who said, it's the transformed mind producing transformed feet. That's what we're after. If all we get in church are biblically literate people, then we've missed it. The purpose of the gospel, the purpose of God's grace, the purpose of God's people, that purpose is not for inspiration or information, but for transformation. God has graced you to transform you. David acknowledges, you know, if, if all you wanted were more religious activities, I would do it. I'd bring you all the burnt offerings in the world. If that's what you wanted, if you just wanted more church services, if you just wanted more religious activities, if you just wanted me to be pious before other people, I would do it. I know how to be churched, David says. But what you desire is a broken and contrite heart. For that person you will not despise. My friend, I want you to know God will never slam the door in your face if you come to him out of humility and contrition. Open and honestly, you place your guilt before God and you are pleading for cleansing and you're promising a life of transformation. You come as a spiritual beggar desperately dependent upon the Lord. God will never close the door in your face. He will always welcome you. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. David concludes, then there will be righteous sacrifices. What David is longing for is he's longing for righteous sacrifices. He is longing to be declared right before God. He is longing to be declared innocent in the sight of God. Then there will be righteous sacrifices. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was good, but it was inadequate. It could not deliver in the sense that it could not thoroughly wipe away sin. Every year, the people of God would gather on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and really what that was was a payment plan. It was just pushing off God's wrath. One more year 
And throughout the year, then they'd offer up numerous sacrifices because they understood that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so they just kept pushing off God's wrath, pushing off God's wrath, one sacrifice at a time. And they're longing for righteous sacrifices. David is longing to be declared innocent and right in the sight of God. He says, God, there's coming a day when there will be righteous sacrifices. My friends, I came to tell you that 2,000 years ago, there was a righteous sacrifice that was made. Jesus the Christ, the God-man. Not uh, merely a godly man, of which there have been many. Not, not a man who became God, of which there have been none. But Jesus was and is the perfect God-man. Fully God, fully human. And Jesus was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. And the punishment that brings us peace was placed upon him. And Jesus was beaten beyond all human recognition, not because of his sin, but because of your sin and mine. Not because he calculated anything sinful, but because you and I have calculated things sinful. Jesus was beaten beyond all human recognition. He stumbled and staggered outside the streets of Jerusalem. They took him up and executed him between two thieves. They stretched out his arms. They drove rusty spikes through his wrist and his feet. They shoved a crown of thorns on his head. They punctured his side with a sword. And in that moment, Jesus endured all of God's holy hostility and his righteous wrath to the point that Jesus declares, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in powerful fashion, Jesus lays down his own life. He says, it is finished. What's finished? Your righteousness is finished. Your redemption is finished. Your payment in full has been made. Redemption has been paid. Righteousness has been secured. It is finished. And Jesus bowed his head and gave up his ghost. They took his cold, dead, lifeless body. They placed it into a borrowed tomb. They rolled a stone in front of it. The disciples watched in horror. The family members of Jesus were sobbing uncontrollably. Friday afternoon gave way to Friday night and there was nothing. Friday night gave way to Saturday morning. There was no activity. Saturday morning gave way to Saturday afternoon. Nothing was happening. Saturday afternoon gave way to Saturday night and there was absolutely nothing. The disciples were about ready to go back and start fishing again, open up their old businesses. But yet Saturday night led into early Sunday morning. And early Sunday morning, Jesus rose with all healing and power in his hands. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. Jesus is victorious over Satan himself. And Jesus declares that by his sacrifice, you are declared righteous in the sight of God. If you come to him by faith and if you give him uh, your sin, he'll give you his sanctification. And by faith, you'll be declared innocent in the sight of God. So that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ clothed over your body your heart and your soul it is Jesus who declares us righteous he is our righteous sacrifice so if I could sum up Psalm 51 in one statement it would be this there is no sin too gross for God's grace there is no sin too gross for God's grace. This is not only the, the big idea of Psalm 51, it's also the big idea of David's life. If David teaches us anything, he says that no sin is too gross for God. Your sin is not too gross for God's grace. My sin, not too gross for God's grace. There is no sin that's too gross for the grace of God. Yet grace does not mean that you have a license to live however you want to live. Grace does not mean that you can remain selfish in your action and in your demeanor. 
Grace does not even promise to remove consequences. But grace does promise to declare you righteous in the sight of God. This is what David learned. This is what David wrote. So, the hymn writer is exactly right. There is a fountain, and it's filled with blood, and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, and they lose all of their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. Church, I came to tell you this morning, there is no sin too gross for the grace of God. You ought to be a person who places your guilt before the Lord and plead with God for his cleansing and promise a life of transformation. Don't leave the same way you came in. I want you to leave transformed. I want you to leave desire, declared righteous in the sight of God. Because what David says of himself, he says to you and to me, there is no sin too gross for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. And we bow before you and we ask for you to barah within us a brand new heart. Help us not to leave cold and calloused and calculated. Help us to leave compassionate, convicted, complete in the sight of God. Oh Lord, I pray that this altar will be full. I, I, I don't know the sins of your people. I just know the sin that's within me. And so Lord, I pray that whatever that sin is, that we just get honest with you and confess it and repent. Spare us from just a couple of verses of a song. Help us to truly encounter you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.